Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hi, I'm Tanya Oliveira. I work for Transparence Entertainment Group. I focus on World X USA neighboring rights on the performer side and rights holder side. Welcome back to Money in the Air. It's a podcast about neighboring rights brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. Today's guests are Steve McMillan and Dennis Dreeth. And we're going to talk about film and television. Part two. Welcome to the show. Can we please start with reiterating the difference between copyright and neighboring rights or related rights or equitable remuneration? The, the distinction's very often misunderstood. It's something that's still not fully appreciated at all. Neighboring rights are not the same as author's right or copyright. They're separate. They're distinct and they're generally available to performers, producers and broadcasters. And I've had probably a dozen meetings over the summer, which I mentioned to somebody else on the board. It's been absolutely clear that some rights holders, be they production companies, composers, sometimes their lawyers and accountants are really in the dark as far as neighbouring rights, related rights, however we're going to describe them. Most composers, songwriters, publishers, they're obviously well aware of their own rights as far as copyright ownership is concerned. They know how to monetize by way of performance income through their usual PRO channel, ASCAP, BMI, PRS, Gamer, SASM, etc. Neighboring rights are different, totally different. I was looking at some historical stuff on neighboring rights. Somebody referred to them as they were slightly inferior to the author's right or copyright. Just looking back at sort of French law on this, French law actually states that neighboring rights shall not limit any exercise of the author's right. So it would stand in second place to the author's right. And I think, as we all know, they're referred to as related rights in Germany, connected rights in Spain, Portugal, or whatever. But their existence relies on the creative work or authorship that usually precedes or underlies them. So in the UK, copyright means the right granted to works that result from the author's own intellectual creation. And related rights means simply the protection given to performers, producers and broadcasters for their performance of such a creation. In many cases, the copyright owner may well be the neighbouring rights holder as well, but not always, not often, uh, not always the case indeed. Thinking back, I think it's understandable to some extent why sort of awareness of copyright is so much greater. Again, looking back in the historic sort of the history of these sorts of things, copyright's been enshrined in law by the British Act 1710. Related rights only came in, what, Rome Convention 1961. So there's 250 sort of years there. But it just seems to me that every time I'm talking to music composers or music producers or film producers, they still don't get it. I'm having to go through it time and time again. I don't know whether other people's experiences, but that's certainly something that is happening time and time again. I was on a call with a very prominent film composer who was in the process of releasing a soundtrack album. 
and mentioned neighboring rights. And he goes, what? What are those? And he said, well, I'm fine. My works are copyrighted. And I said, well, no, it's not the same thing. And, and I said, in this case, you know, there are really two types of copyrights. There's a copyright for the composition, but there's also a copyright for the sound recording. A fairly well-known film composer and completely in the dark that he also had available to him a copyright for the sound recording and that he also had a separate copyright as the composition. And I explained that, you know, he was actually going to be releasing this album himself and that if he expected to be the recipient of any neighboring rights or related rights, then he was going to have to register that and become the owner of that and register that with different societies. Otherwise, he would not be receiving any neighboring rights, even though he was the featured artist on it. The other thing that Steve mentioned, which is so pertinent right now, is this notion that somehow the neighboring rights is going to cost somebody else money, cost the songwriter and the publisher money. The biggest impediment in the U.S. to a more robust neighboring rights has been exactly that. And the broadcasters have done a very, very good job at co-opting at least the uh, the composers and publishers. And they've convinced them somehow that if we had a more robust neighboring rights here, that that money was going to come out of their share. If performers got paid for airplay on the radio, for example, that that's money that's gonna, that they're going to pay that, not the broadcasters. And it's been an uphill fight to really convince them and show people that really it's meant to be a totally separate, right? Those monies have to be paid over and above. We've gone to great lengths in the legislation that we've proposed here to make sure that that is spelled out in the legislation and actually is part of the legislation that these rights are, in fact, over and above the monies paid to publishers and, you know, and composers. But it's been a battle, and there's that notion and it's really well ingrained. The broadcasters have done an excellent job of convincing people of that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an uphill battle here, but one has done much better in Europe but there's still a problem there as well. I think one of the major issues is not necessarily the knowledge of the composer or indeed the production company. What I found quite astounding is the knowledge of the advisors, be they the lawyers, the accountants or the management for those particular organisations or individuals. Borders on negligence, I'm afraid, but it's certainly happening. And there's at least 12, maybe up to 20 conversations I've had over the last few months have been particularly well-known composers. Those guys and one of their agents had no idea what I was talking about when I was talking about the neighbouring related rights. When I teach the difference in all the different rights, I always use PI because you have your P in a circle for the phonographic copyright yeah. in the recording. You have your C in the circle for the composition copyright in the lyrics and the music. And if I bring in a cherry pie and put a big C on it, and then I bring in a pecan pie and put a big P on it, they can actually see and taste the difference. Once you see it in food form, you never get them mixed up again. Do they understand where they have to register them differently? No, I think that's a, I think that's a learning curve, and I think it's a steep learning curve that we're working on with many of them. Once they get it, then they get it. But I'm just staggered and totally astounded by the number that just do not have a clue and sort of, you know, go back to the example Dennis gave, I agree with it totally. Well, some of those meetings that I've had when I've been trying to explain what the related rights, neighbouring rights issue is, some of them have immediately talked about, you know, surely PRS do that for me or ASCAP, BMI or SASEM do that for me. And that is, you know, that's a real lack of significant knowledge. The major labels, you know, record labels, the big guys totally understand that they have to register their works. One of the problems is that a lot of the indies 
really don't understand that if they don't register those works with the various CMOs, that the artists themselves can't get paid. So not only does the label not get the money, but the artist doesn't. We had yeah. one discussion with an aggressive label. They're a, kind of a startup label. They've been in the publishing business for quite some time, and now they're offering label services. They were complaining that they don't see any money from neighboring rights. And so we start to look at it and we said, well, you don't have any works registered. And they said, well, we our, our, our artists signed up. And we said, yes, they signed up. The artists signed up with these different societies. But unless you register works, nobody's going to get paid. And it was a revelation to them. It's interesting to just to see that as much as we've been doing this now, and as much as we take for granted, there's still sort of the most basic knowledge that's not somehow sinking into everybody out there. Do you find that they don't even know what an ISRC is? No, that they know because most of the labels know that, that they get paid other sources for that. If they don't have that, their mechanicals aren't going to get paid. They can't track their sales and all that kind of stuff. And, and they can't track their streaming. They, they understand that there's money from other sources, but it's just really the, the notion of having to register a work. Other works, you don't have to necessarily register. If your work is being streamed, attached to an ISRC and money just comes to you. So you don't have to do anything except release product that becomes successful. But the notion that there's a, this extra step that has to be taken for neighboring rights is something that just definitely falls through the cracks. My experience is slightly different to that because on a lot of the meetings that I'm particularly referring to, the composer, the production company or the rep was actually talking more ISWC rather than ISRC. And there was there seemed, again, to be a total confusion between them. I'm in the, those meetings not to actually educate, but it was like an education process going through it. Really, I guess I'm also talking here particularly about the independent film sector. I'll come on to why I'm talking about that a little bit later when we come on to one of the other topics, but that's the sector that I'm really looking at. There is definitely a significant lack of knowledge of the methodology. Are you finding that when you get cue sheets, the ISRC numbers are on them? Not without sending them back to the music supervisor. That's a problem too, isn't it? I would say, at least in the States, almost never cue sheets, and uh, which makes it very difficult, for example, to know was this was a particular song re-recorded for the film? In other words, for the, you may have a, a song you take like, you know, like a movie Shrek, where they recorded I'm a Believer at the end, Smash Mouth recorded that. So it's listed on the cue sheet is I'm a Believer, but it's all, it's all that's listed there is the composer and the publisher of the song. We don't know whether that was really the original song that was licensed for the movie or it's the Smash Mouth recording. Now, most of us who have watched the film or have anybody who has children <laughs> has probably seen that film many, many times. So we know that, but you can't rely on on that kind of knowledge to say, okay, I know that that's uh, Smash Mouth, you know, because I saw the film with my daughter 23 times <laughs> last week. It's so very, very important. And so many people just totally sort of, they don't ignore it, but I find a lot of production companies try and do it themselves. They may get a little bit of information from a music supervisor, but that music cue sheet, that's the starter for all of the rights that we're looking at here, whether it's performance income, whether it's related rights, whatever. That, if it's done correctly, is the starter. So, I mean, sometimes the music cue sheet, and I'm sure a lot of you other guys have found that, it's an absolute disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And it's incomplete. And partly because it's not really music people that do it. Very often it's, it's done within the production company. The music cue sheet is so, so very, very critical. And it should be critical for both ISWC and ISRC. The starting point, when we started at the AFM SAG After Fund, when I was running that fund, we were the first kind of at least organization here to start an audiovisual department. Because that's what told us what percentage might possibly 
would be licensed music as opposed to music recorded as underscore. And most of the societies, especially in Spain, divide the music up. There's sort of two different pools. There's the pool of music of, of royalties that are paid for the sound recordings licensed into the movies and the portion of the of the neighboring rights that are paid for the actual music, the underscore that's recorded specifically for the, for the movie. So we had to divide those into those two pools and then try to find the songs that were licensed into it and then attach the performers to that. So there's a great deal of work that happened, but none of it could start until we actually had the cue sheet to look at and find the basic elements of what, first we had to know, what is the music in this motion picture before we do anything else? What's licensed, what's recorded for? And then we could go about our business of trying to track down all the performers on those different recordings. But we had to know what we had at first. And the cue sheet is the only place where you can find the starting place. So you've got to start with a good foundation and that's the only place to start with. Do you find that there's a significant difference in the way film and television are handled from country to country? Very much so. Possibly even, I would say, all different types of neighboring rights. You know, sound recordings are notoriously handled differently from territory to territory. And I would say that motion pictures and television films, even more so. In, in the U.S., we don't really have an audiovisual right here. What we do is we collect from a handful of sources. The only places that pay U.S. performers are Brazil, Spain, and Germany. And each of those have a very different sort of system themselves. But then among that, so when we try to collect from other territories, it's very, very different. Some will pay only the sound recording in a motion picture and only the sound recording that are recorded in a Rome Convention country. Some will pay only the underscore. Some will pay the underscore, but only uh, for motion pictures that were recorded in a Rome Convention country or some in a motion picture that's recorded only in their territory. So it's all over the map. So I can't profess to be an expert on all the different societies and territories because we really only collect primarily from three, but we've had discussions over the years with almost every significant territory. And even among the three that collect, it's quite different. Spain really collects... Uh, and processes the payments based on broadcast data and what's really broadcast in theaters and on television. Germany, the biggest component of their audiovisual rights come from private copy. So it's more comes from, from the use on tablets and smartphones and all those kind of things that actually comes from the actual theatrical and television broadcast. So there's very different, and even though the amounts of money could actually be similar, but each one of them pays separately. I, you know, I'm sure there are others who operate more in, in Europe, um, with all of them have a, a different perspective on that than, than do I, but but mine is that, yeah, it's very different. And, and of course, that's further confused by the fact in the States that since we don't have the protected right, we do have our union negotiated sort of residuals or royalties on the use of motion pictures and other platforms. So there's the Film Musician Secondary Markets Fund collects 1% of the producer's gross from exhibition on various platforms like cable TV and on home video and those kind of things. So, but it doesn't pay any actual royalties to musicians. It collects the producer's gross and pays that. And the musicians who are on union produced scores get paid once a year for their uh, pro rata share of, of, of what they played on. So, so that's a very, very different situation, totally unique to the rest of the world. I'm not aware of any other society or territory that has a rule similar to that. So the U.S. is totally alone in that. But people oftentimes think because of that, 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 that audiovisual rights are protected in the U.S. And we have to remind them that, that they're not. So it's only for, uh, for musicians who work on uh, scores that are produced under a union agreement. 
from my perspective, I, I, I think I describe that very much like cowboy country or frontier land because nobody seems to really have any handle on precisely what countries and what territories are paying and what are not. We've actually sort of started a bit of an, an initiative to try and get around that, try to get some sort of bearing on, on the actual recognition and treatment of neighbouring rights, related rights payments for the use of music in film and TV. And probably late last year, Jackie Eden, who's IFR member, she started quite a detailed exercise looking at what territories paid for the use of production music. I'm talking specifically about production music, but I don't think there's any difference or distinction. She was looking at production music in audiovisual works and how that was actually being managed in each territory. So what we've done, that's that Jackie started that exercise and it's a good exercise. So We've now started updating the information per territory that, that Jackie got and then extending that to all sorts of bespoke music composed for film and TV and how that might be treated in each territory. As I said, my view, there uh, should be no difference in the treatment of music, production music and bespoke school music. And I've got Michelle Weiss-Maslin from Swedish Songs, who's a, a recent IFR member, has asked whether she can be involved in that. So Michelle and I will be looking at these spreadsheets over the course of the next week or so and seeing how we can develop she can work with Dennis and I to actually develop uh, hopefully some sort of global knowledge or at least a first stab at global knowledge as to who recognizes and who actually pays and how do we actually do it as I say it was started probably later last year by Jackie but I've got all those sheets in front of me so more to follow on that one. So we advocate and have been successful in getting music composed or used in film and television, separate soft releases digitally. So just yep. on Spotify or just through digital platforms. One, because it generates an ISRC code, so it can be registered by the rights holder. Taking that a step further back, negotiating it into the sync license or the bespoke composition license, the commissioning agreement. Is that something that you find that you're doing naturally now for your writers and recording artists? It, it's something that, that I certainly am doing, yes. And it, it's quite funny when you're actually talking about the contract again. That, that's, that, those are some of the examples that I was talking about earlier when I was saying people had no knowledge. Because me broaching that subject with them, it, it was clear they had no knowledge. But the concept I used, I think you used the phrase there, Stacey, uh, soft release. I think that's really, really important. And just regardless of neighbouring rights, related rights, it's a good tactic to get the music from a film or TV programme out there. It's available to the public as a musical work or soundtrack. It's a damn good marketing ploy for any film or TV programme. You know, you register as a rights holder. There's an additional opportunity there for more money to come in. And production companies that don't do that are really, really missing a trick. There's no doubt about that. I, I've seen even really, really poor films recoup reasonable money from having their, having their music registered. In fact, probably more than, than they're going to get from box office or from the theatrical play. But there can only be an upside for the production company or the composer's company or whatever to actually get these ISRC codes. If there is no ISRC code, then you're, then you're fucked. Basically, <laughs> you are totally fucked. You know, you've got to start again. And it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. As soon as you do talk to people about it, then they are getting it. They are getting it, but just as so many out there that don't get it. If you said to a production company, you know what? Don't do any pre-sales for foreign distribution. Just let that money go. They would go, are you crazy? 
Absolutely <laughs> correct. Say to them, yeah. release these recordings and get the neighboring rights royalties. They go, it's too much work. I can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. Are you freaking kidding me? Well, yes. we're, we're finding even uh, a slightly different wrinkle on that. Two things I, I, I you know, to, I'll get to the wrinkle, but it's interesting what we aren't saying too is that you know, there is a greater and greater appetite for soundtrack albums. There are webcasters are, are playing them. And we shouldn't forget that also music for video games, which would not normally be part of an audio visual right, there are many, many soundtrack albums made from video games that are also being played on uh, webcasters. And I, I'm sort of not at liberty to say now, but I know that there's a major DSP that's considering a starting a, a station devoted 100% to soundtrack albums. And we're talking to them, and I think that would be fantastic. So what we do see is uh, talking about the about film companies who who want to hold on to things. I've, I used to encounter this, and I think now the independents, especially when I was working as primarily a composer, would insist on the publishing. And I'd say, okay, what are you going to do with it? And they, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, are you, you know, are you, do you have a publishing company? And they'd say, well, no. And I said, well, how are you going to administer the publishing? How are you going to collect the money if you don't even have that registered? And I would, they would want something. They, an attorney told them that they had to have it. So they, they, they would have it. And I, I just went through this with somebody with neighboring rights. They were insisting that they, that they process all the neighboring rights. And I said, okay, what are you going to do with that? And they said, well, we're going to collect them. And I said, okay, do you, can you tell me how you're going to collect them? Because our client, you know, we actually had them as a, as a rights holder. So I said, before I can advise him to let go of that, I have to know how are you going to collect his share? Because he, how are you going to collect if you don't, if you're not collecting as the rights holder, how is he going to collect as the artist? And they kind of had this look like, what are you talking about? And, and uh, the upshot was they finally said they let go and, and, and we're now talking to them about doing their neighboring rights because they realized they weren't, they weren't even registered. They, they weren't registering with anybody. They were just going to, they wanted them. They wanted to check off the box that they had that, but they didn't know what to do with them, you know, and, and we see that. So part of it is that, you know, people were, you know, they, they, they listen to one seminar or webcast someplace that says, oh, you know, make sure you hold on to these neighboring rights and your publishing rights, all these different rights. But then if they don't understand how to really, you know, administer them, they're useless to them. I think a lawyer should be disbarred if they tell somebody to take a right and then they don't teach them how to administer that right. Three years ago, in the independent film sector, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than three years ago, there was a real desire for the composer to basically own all of the rights within the score and effectively the score would almost be, well, it would be licensed, usually for the life of copyright, but for use only within the film. But I bet not many of those composers or their agents have done anything with those rights that they've got. I bet they've just sat on them, which really echoes. And I have seen a few of those over the last year or so. You know, what have you done with it? Have you moved it into a library? Have you uh, have you pitched it for advertising, marketing, advertising, commercials? Uh, you know, oh, no, no. But we own all of the copyright. And that, yeah. There's a concept in copyright called wasting the asset, which yeah. might be useful for getting them back. Yeah, it is quite, it's quite frustrating when you see it, but there you go. That was amazingly informative. Thank you so much. Go to ifr.co.uk, I-A-F-A-R.co.uk, and hit that Join Us button, because you need to be a member in order to go back and review everything that we're doing. See you next week. Bye.